I've often quoted as saying I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the 2,000 people on the faculty of Harvard University. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. They share our beliefs, our convictions, our hopes, and our dreams. These are the conservatives of the heart. They are our people. Join the best in the movement. It's Conservative Conversations with ISI. Educating for liberty since 1953. Welcome back. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Johnny and Marlo. We're recording this episode from Amelia Island, Florida, the location of our Society Leaders Conference today. So Nate isn't with us, but our guest, Tom Woods, the host of The Tom Woods Show, is. Thanks for being here, Tom. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. It doesn't hurt to be at the uh, Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> That's right. Not a bad getaway for the students, especially on their crazy campuses right now. Tom is a widely published author on a variety of subjects, and we're focusing this episode on libertarianism, which Tom has written and spoken about extensively. Specifically, we're going to discuss the history of folk libertarianism, Tom's role in it, and its contemporary challenges. So before we get started with our interview, I'd like to thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Our mission at ISI is to educate for liberty. If you'd like to help us in that mission, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. So Tom, let's get started by uh, kind of giving us a history of folk libertarianism. And probably a good way to get started, actually, is if you can define folk libertarianism for us. I've actually never heard this term before, and I've been in the movement for 30 years. So can you help me? Yeah. So um, it probably is something that you're already aware of, but it, it's kind of the Ron Paul, kind of the the don't tread on me instinct that is prevalent in kind of, I mean, I think it's it's kind of an American sensibility that perhaps a lot of Americans wouldn't consider, you know, ideologically aligned with libertarianism. So um, it's, it's, you know, kind of, the definition is kind of looser, but that's what I would call folk libertarianism. I've heard it said a lot on the right. So I figured you probably have a lot more information on that impulse and how perhaps you can track it within the broader libertarian movement. Yeah. See, I think the thing is that for me, that is the only libertarianism that counts. So I've never thought to designate it by any special term. It's just my world and my circles. And it's not to say that Absolutely nobody who's in the DC orbit working in a think tank has ever done any has you know has never done any valuable work. Uh, sometimes there is some valuable work that comes out of there, but a lot of times there's a lot of confusion, selling out. Uh, there's a lot of uh, pe- people who are incredibly boring, spreading the ideas from there because I don't. Know, there's a certain tameness that seems to have. It's like if you move to D- now, I, I say this with deep res- and profound respect. For my friend Dan McCarthy, who lives in Northern Virginia, but when you're in the, the the heart of D.C., it's almost like when you move there, one of the requirements is a surgical one. Your spine is removed, and it just makes you into one of these automatons. And it's like, for example, when Ron Paul was was uh, running for president both times, there were there were it was pretty clear that the D.C. set didn't much care for him because he wasn't sophisticated enough like them. And he didn't talk about the issues that they talked about. And he focused on things that they didn't want him to focus on. So they were way too sophisticated for him, but they didn't really dare say so that publicly because they knew that millions of people would come down on them for it. So they more or less just kept their mouths shut. 
Tom, I, I'm wondering if you could elaborate a bit on the history of libertarianism in America. Obviously, going back to the American founding, there were some strong, you know, libertarian impulses, the Jeffersonian tradition uh, in American thought. And then I'm curious, though, the arrival of maybe you know the Austrian school of thought into America. And then how did we get where we are today, where you have sort of the Beltway libertarians which are of one strand, and then we have the Ron Paul libertarians, which are another strand. Can you kind of tease this out uh, for those who aren't familiar with the tradition? Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, uh, we can speak very broadly about the 18th and 19th centuries and say that we can certainly see in uh, the American founding and in in the the, uh, drafters of the Constitution, you can see obviously a lot of instincts that are shared in common by modern day libertarians, like a concern about centralized power and a desire to protect the rights of the individual. Uh, you know, obviously these are very, very important and they are, I think, despite all the problems we have in the U S I still think that the words of the first amendment have become so much a part of American culture that it's been harder for the U.S. government to impose restrictions on speech of the sorts that we've seen in other countries, because it's just too embedded into the American psyche going back to the Constitution. But in terms of the, the 20th century, now in the 19th century, we find we could find some great uh, radical libertarian voices like Lysander Spooner, who confounded everyone by being radically anti-slavery and radically pro-secession, as if defying people to categorize him. But into the 20th century, uh, there's a really, really great book for anybody who just wants to get a handle on, on all, all this history. And it was written by a guy named George Nash. And it has a boring title, but it's a great, fascinating book called The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America Since 1945. And that helps you to understand who the major players were and who the different camps were among conservatives and libertarians, and what the issues that united and divided them were. So I'm very fond of that book. Um, Of course, after World War II, we got the creation of the Foundation for Economic Education. But before that, we also had, now it was, it's now the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, but it used to be the something Society of Individualists, and I forget what the first I stood for. Do, Do one of you remember? Intercollegiate. Are you sure it was intercollegiate? Yeah. It might be okay. Society of Individualists. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're talking about institutions that go back to the decade after uh, World War II. And, and, and in these institutions, I think you could find, because in, in, in ISI, you could find Frank Chodorov, who was a, 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 a radical libertarian, borderline uh, anarchist, perhaps. Um, but you also find, I mean, for example, Modern Age, the periodical was founded in 1957. And that of course, um, I was founded by Russell Kirk, established um, you know, with, with his work. Um, you, you see published in that plenty of libertarians and conservatives. So Murray Rothbard, who was known as Mr. Libertarian, was published in there. His books were reviewed in there. His History of Colonial America was reviewed in there. Um, the Foundation for Economic Education was publishing people uh, we would consider to be across the spectrum of, of you know, right-of-center thinkers. Uh, but by the 1960s, there was a bit of tension developing, I think, between some of these people because um, certainly Murray Rothbard, being being as radical a libertarian as he was, he, although 
obviously anti-communist, he didn't like where he saw American foreign policy going. He sort of felt like communism, international communism, is, is bound to collapse of its own weight. And uh, it's it's best to let them, you know, if they want to go, you know, uh, establish a beachhead in some remote part of Africa, let them do that because that will just be an albatross around their necks. It's going to be a economic basket case. They're going to have to infuse cash into let them do that if that's what they want and let them get a reputation in the developing world as being the imperialists. And if we just stay out, then we'll just get a reputation for being the liberty lovers. So so that was his view. It was a very, very unpopular view uh, on the right, which generally felt like there has to be a robust American intervention to stop the spread of this unprecedented danger. So that kind of kept him out of the National Review orbit for a while, where he had been in. Uh, And so he just kind of flailed around for a while, trying to find people... um, you know, he could, he could ally with. And so for a while he allied with the new left because they believed he thought in free speech on campus and they were anti-war, but the more he hung around with them, the crazier he realized they were. So he had to move along to the next thing. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, Rothbard uh, had uh, an enormous uh, productivity so that he was almost like a one man libertarian movement. He wrote an amazing economic treatise in 1962 called Man, Economy, and State, which really helped to keep the Austrian School of Economics alive at a time when, I mean, really, you could probably fit into a phone booth. Well, I'm I'm talking about phone booths. Nobody listening to this even remembers phone booths, but we used to have them before we had cell phones. There were very few Austrian economists left, and Rothbard kept it going. And then in 1974... F.A. Hayek won the Nobel Prize, and that generated more interest in the Austrian school. But Rothbard was busy keeping the thing going, uh, both with that book, and then also he wrote a book on America's Great Depression, showing that it's not right to blame that on quote-unquote capitalism. He wrote, uh, uh, Macmillan asked him to write a book on libertarianism in the the 1970s because there was interest in it. So he wrote For a New Liberty about that. He wrote a book called The Ethics of Liberty, dealing with some thorny questions in libertarianism, like where do property rights really come from? Um, Is there such a thing as animal rights? And he he investigates all that. Um, So he was was very, very prolific, but he felt very alienated from, let's say, the, the, uh, the conservative movement as it existed then. But by the end of the 1980s, once the, the foreign policy began to draw back a bit because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, he kind of he felt like it was a homecoming for him because he, he reestablished some old friendships and he moved, started to move back in conservative circles. And he even endorsed Pat Buchanan for president in 1992, because even though he didn't agree with Pat on everything, he felt like this guy is just going to be a wrecking ball to the D.C. establishment. And that's what we need is a wrecking ball. So. Um, so meanwhile, there is a libertarian movement developing, but the, you know, the, the thing about libertarianism is there are some people who believe in it because they, they, they're very Misesian, because they, 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 they love the formulations of the economist Ludwig von Mises, that, that what we're all about is um, private property, uh, the defense of individual rights, peace, and... Um, the division of labor and international cooperation through the marketplace. And then there were other people who were libertarians for more lifestyle reasons, because, uh, you know, they, because they wanted to do certain things that were against the law, let's say. 
And so some of them, they would perfectly be happy to admit they have not really read much about libertarianism or they don't know any economics. Or they, but to them, libertarianism means endorsing their lifestyle choices. And so as time went on, this became the bane of Rothbard's existence because he felt like people were missing the boat. The idea of libertarianism is non-aggression, uh, is, is interacting freely as opposed to through coercion. And if that incidentally happens to make somebody's lifestyle a little bit easier, then that's an incidental benefit of it. But that's not the purpose. And so, uh, in fact, at one point, Rothbard, who, who helped to found the Libertarian Party, helped to establish the platform, helped to insert the non-interventionist foreign policy plank into it. He finally just left the Libertarian Party and just said, this is a bunch of moochers and losers and weirdos and and they're attracted to libertarianism because fringe people are attracted to fringe causes. And, and so, you know, that's, that's the unfortunate side effect. So what we have now, I, I wouldn't say it's neatly divide, divided into two camps, but I would say that there's sort of what I like to call official libertarianism, you know, capital O, capital L with a TM at the end. There's official libertarianism that wants to be respectable and uh, yeah, we're against the government, but let's not go go overboard here. We want to be respectable in the kind of language we use. Um, we, we want to be restrained in our rhetoric, and we want to not push this issue, not push that that issue. And whatever the latest left wing cultural fad is, we can't jump on board that bandwagon fast enough. But if there is a massive biomedical dystopia erected in the country, we'll probably stay mum on that. Versus the Ron Paul libertarians who don't care what the establishment thinks of them, who don't consult focus groups to decide what words they should use, and who just are going to tell these truths in season and out. That's where we are. I'm really glad you brought up the, uh, the, as the term you use, biomedical security state, because it's one I'm hearing used more, uh, more and more uh, frequently. And I'm glad that that's the term that's being assigned here. And obviously, COVID and the subsequent lockdowns and other restrictions, they've seemed to activate this uh, libertarian impulse in a lot of Americans. Like, don't mask my children. Don't tell me to get a vaccine if that's, a, you know, that's a personal choice. Or, um, you know, don't, this government or these technocrats have no authority over um, me or the decisions that I make in my household, et cetera. Um, these have, you know, these have come from people who perhaps would not align with uh, libertarianism TM or, uh, you know, these other beltway libertarian um, organizations. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, where do you think, is this a moment for folk libertarianism to coalition build from the grassroots? Do you see any momentum building here throughout the last two years because of this uh, biomedical security state that's developing? Or uh, is, that, is, is that movement, is it not being really set in motion because there's no, uh, there's no structure? Well, one of the problems that I knew would emerge after Dr. Paul retired from politics was that he didn't, I don't think, even realize the extent to which he was the force around which everything coalesced. And in the absence of him, what was going to happen? Were we just going to roll off our orbit or what? And I think that is kind of what happened, that, that there, were, there are now antagonistic groups within the movement whose antagonism had been kept at bay by the fact that most of us supported Ron Paul, at least in those days. Now it's fashionable to say he's not progressive enough like us, you know, and all that. But 
But we were, we did have some of our divisions kept at bay by his unifying presence. Now, without that, we have, you know, the kind of antagonism we see. I do see things like uh, just the other day on Twitter, I saw somebody saying, and I think she's like a, just a mom of public school kids who said, is it just me or after all this craziness with COVID, do you also think maybe you're a libertarian? I thought, oh, how about that? Because remember, at the beginning of all this, it was very fashionable to say, I wouldn't want to be a libertarian during a pandemic. (laughs) Because, of course, we know we need the public health establishment to tell us what to do. And you libertarians would have us all dying in the streets and corpses piled up everywhere. But I would say after two years of of what we've endured, I'm quite proud to be a libertarian during a pandemic. You know, I think we would have been a lot better off if we had followed that. And so I I do think that it's led a lot of people, not a majority, of course, but a lot of people have lost friends over this. People who have been lifelong Democrats, that's an interesting untold story, who just simply think you you ought to be able to live your life, have found themselves shunned and discarded and smeared and attacked. And wondering, well, I don't know if I want to hang around with these people anymore. Maybe I actually have friends across the aisle now instead. I think it's having that. I, whereas I don't think it's working in reverse. I don't think there were libertarians who say, gee, I, I wish the government would impose more restrictions. I, I better be friends with Democrats now. I don't think it's working that way. I think it's working the other way. It would be nice if institutional libertarianism were more prepared to welcome them with open arms as opposed to ignoring them or disparaging them or whatever. But I can certainly say that at the Mises Institute, we're happy to receive them. I'm sure at ISI, you're happy to receive these people who don't, you know, as I said in my talk today, these are not necessarily people who read Edmund Burke in their spare time, but they have instincts that are very much in line with that. And, you know, they, I want to welcome these people. In fact, a lot of my new listeners in my podcast are people who started listening to the Tom Woods show because they liked my COVID commentary. But now I've taken that opportunity to introduce them to the whole panoply of thinkers we want them reading. And they realize, hey, I, I came for the COVID, but I stayed for the whole philosophy. Tom, I have a, a question on private tyranny for you and how a libertarian response to that. So in the news recently, we saw GoFundMe uh, there, there had been uh, a campaign to raise support for the Canadian truckers who are protesting the vaccine mandates in Canada. And they raised, I think it was millions of dollars on a GoFundMe account. And now uh, GoFundMe has taken down their page um, after allegations of violence, uh, which uh, I, I, I haven't you know, watched the situation closely enough. So I, I don't know if that's true or not. A lot of people say it's unfounded. So they've taken down the GoFundMe page, and I think this has fueled some on the right or maybe on the new right to say, aha, you know, here's an example of private actors working in conjunction with the government to stifle you know, the organic free society. So what is, your, what is the libertarian response to the growing uh, and empowerment of these giant companies who are um, you know, function, functioning in many respects like the government in terms of censuring uh, behavior and silencing. Yeah, and I think we have to be honest here. Instead of just giving a pat, sloganeering, libertarian response, I think we have to be honest here and say that this is a bit of a challenge to us. That up to now, I think we have been inclined to say, well, 
the free market response will always be um, optimal in some way, or we'll figure out a way around it. And by the way, I still think that in the long run, that probably is the answer. I mean, really, that probably is the only possible answer. I know for a fact I'm never going to use GoFundMe ever again. Not, I mean, I've never raised money with it. But if I see somebody raising money with it, I'll say, look, I'll, I'll um, match the next 10 grand donated if you take it onto another platform. I mean, in the long run, that has to be the answer. In the short run, I know there are people who say, look, libertarians, we get what you're saying about the dangers of the state, but you need to understand the potential dangers of non-state actors, indeed, who may be in one way or another in collusion with the state, but it's not enough to just say, oh, well, someday there'll be another institution created parallel to it. But we are living at a time when there has never been a greater opportunity to create parallel institutions. I mean, on the internet, it's it's astonishing how quickly you can create your own thing. Uh, it's true that sometimes they make it difficult for you to create your own thing, but a, a new fundraising platform, that wouldn't take uh, much doing. And it would be a lot easier. I mean, it's hard for, for GoFundMe now to appeal to conservatives because they've just blown that relationship. But a completely impartial fundraising platform who's, who, who basically say, look, we're, we're just here to fundraise. It's not our goal to judge you. We're not your mother. If you need a mother, go go call your mother on the phone and, and have her tell you what to do. But it's not our job to be your mother. I think there are even some progressives who would on some level get that, okay, if I don't like some cause they're raising funds for, going and complaining to the platform they're raising the funds on is not the right way to go. You know, I can I can publicly shame them. I can urge my friends not to donate. But I think it would be easier for for a a platform that just simply says we're not taking sides to get a big audience than it is for a platform to say we're going to intervene and overturn your donation decisions. I think that's going to hurt them. I really think this is going to hurt them. So in the long run, it has to be an entrepreneurial solution. There are 80 million people in this country who have been completely demonized by the political class, demonized to the point where they feel like strangers in their own country. If that isn't an entrepreneurial opportunity, then then what would be? And, and ultimately, it has to be. I know it sounds like hard work, but anything worth doing uh, is often takes a lot of effort. What solution is there to this other than we have to create parallel institutions? I, I don't see how we could have the Justice Department monitor places like GoFundMe, but that's going to have unhappy outcomes at least as often as it's going to have happy ones. Whereas if we can summon our entrepreneurial strength and just create our own thing where we don't even need these people, that has to be the best answer. So what's the ideal situation, do you think, for um, obviously the the kind of trope, especially among um, more the national conservative types, is that there are a lot of obstacles for building, you know, building our own institutions because there are I mean, if it's not private or if it's not government authorities um, stifling speech or preventing these institutions from thriving, then it's uh, other, you know, private industry that either they have monopoly power or um, some other there, there's some other limitation for that. What would you say to, to that argument that often comes from I, the I hear it. I, I agree with it. I, I hear you. It, it's it is very hard. I gave the example of Parler as an example of a parallel institution. Because these very people say, oh, you don't like what Facebook is doing or what Twitter is doing? Then go start your own social media platform. Okay, well, that sounds impossible, but they actually went and did it. 
And so then when they went and did it, every conceivable obstacle was put in their path. So they don't even mean it when they say, go start your own thing. Yeah, go start your own thing. We're going to shut that down too. I absolutely understand how frustrating that is, but I think that just goes to show, again, I don't see how a solution that relies on goodwill in the justice bureaucracy at the federal level can possibly be a permanent solution. So it just means that the project ahead of us is harder than we want it to be. But uh, for example, I have a, I have a friend who uh, has a, a hosting service for websites. And uh, well, I'll just say Mark Jeftovic, Mark Jeftovic, uh, J-E-F-T-O-V-I-C. And he wrote a, a book on how to not get canceled. And now I can't remember. I forget if it's called Unbreakable. It's Unsomethingable, Mark Jeftovic. And he's really, really interesting on these issues. But he's the guy I go to when somebody gets a website polled by the hosting or is in some trouble. And I always just, and they write to me and they say, what do I do? I didn't do anything wrong. And now I can't even have my website up. And I just forward them over to Mark. And I say, can you help this person? And every time he just gets them right back up. So that's a micro example of what we need on a macro level. Tom, right now we've got a a situation that's heating up. Uh, between Russia and uh, the rest of Europe and the United States over Ukraine. And U.S. officials have been uh, saying or signaling that they're moving troops to um, uh, maybe not to Ukraine proper, but to support other uh, NATO allies uh, in the eastern part of Europe. And I'm curious, um, you know, from your perspective in the anti-war movement, what you make of this current situation. And do you have any hope that you know, after four years of Trump, it seemed as though a more restrained foreign policy position was gaining ground uh, among people on the right and the Republican Party. Do you think that will hold moving forward? And how do you see this crisis in Ukraine unfolding? Well, certainly um, there are more people, let's say, on the Republican right who are skeptical of intervention than before. And that will, I hope, help us because it complicates the picture now. Uh, whereas the Democratic Party seems much more interested in in intervening. Now, on a matter like this, I, I have a very visceral kind of response because I, the, the way I look at things is this: that I am sure there could there it's quite possible that there are gross injustices in many parts of the world, but I can't fix all those injustices. I can't even fix all the dumb people in my town who want to wear masks in their cars. I can't even fix that. And so it reminds me of Thomas Aquinas, who says that we're, we, you as a normal layman do not have the same moral obligation to literal, literally every person on earth that a monk has, like a missionary monk or a missionary like a, like a uh, Franciscan friar might have. They are engaged in what are known as supererogatory works, and those are highly meritorious, but they are not what the average layman is called to. You are called, first of all, to provide for those in your own family. Because if, if, if read in uh, Timothy, First uh, Timothy, I can't remember the exact verse number, but, but that, that if you do not, anyone who does not care for, for those of his own household is worse than an infidel. So we start with the household, and then you move upward in a series of concentric circles in terms of what you owe to those levels of people. So whatever is going on, halfway around the world, I have to ask myself, is the situation in Russia and Ukraine, is that why my kids are being educated by people who can't stand the sight of me? 
and why my kids are having their heads filled with insane propaganda or masked, or now they want to put uh, insane suffocation masks on the kids, or or why uh, I I have I'm afraid to speak my mind half the time in my own country because I will be demonized and deplatformed and ruined. Um, and I I can go down the list of insane, clearly false propositions that Americans are forced to to pretend to believe are true. None of this is caused by Russia, not one of these things. And I think there has been much too much um, uh, eagerness to go abroad looking for bad guys. At this point, there are so many bad guys grinding the faces of good Americans into the dirt right here at home who are ruining their livelihoods, depriving them of their livelihoods, uh, making it impossible for them to function. I, I, I know people who are trapped in California where they can't take their kids to preschool because they're not going to subject them to the cra- crazy COVID stuff. They can't work even remotely because even remotely there were mandates in place in that crazy place. And in order to comply with all the nuttiness, they're spending all kinds of, of money or in order to get around it, they're spending all kinds of money that they can't spend on a down payment or on the expenses necessary to move. That's happening right here, right now at the hands of fellow Americans. And to me, it's preposterous to think that maybe European countries might not be able to take care of this Ukraine matter with Russia instead. And maybe we focus on the fact that no matter what we do, if we succeed or fail in Ukraine, we have millions and millions of Americans whose lives continue to be undermined and ruined by their own fellow countrymen. And that's where our attention has to be. Tom, earlier, um, you, so you spoke to our students about, uh, specifically, you, you cited the, the situation in Yemen, which, uh, you know, the U.S. has been uh, funding arms to uh, multiple Middle Eastern countries within that, uh, that conflict. And um, I've been interested in kind of reading more about the anti-war movement in America, specifically, um, obviously, the paleocons and the libertarians and um, na- the national conservatives being kind of, um, you know, popularly on that, on that front, that's been kind of, I mean, I'm, you know, I graduated college a, a few years ago, so I, I don't quite know the full picture there. Um, but I do know that, you know, from 9-11 forward, there were definitely some, some shifts between um, the popular perception of what was happening and, and the, regarding the U.S. intervention in Iraq. So I'm curious, you know, you've edited a book, I believe, on um, the anti-war uh, movement, specifically in the context of libertarianism. Could you kind of go into detail about what the what what that history looks like. I know Ron Paul and Rand Paul, I mean, as well, have, have been kind of the the stalwarts on that front. Well, there's an interesting letter that Murray Rothbard wrote, a private letter he wrote all the way back in 1956, in which he said, I'm becoming completely, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the war peace question is the key to the libertarian business. So the emphasis on this issue goes back quite a long ways. And that's why uh, Rothbard took the position he did on the Vietnam War. He favored non-intervention there also. Now, it's interesting that the John Birch Society, this is not well known, also opposed intervention into, into Vietnam. And yet the John Birchers, the, the, the main criticism you'd make of them is that, if anything, they overstated the communist problem, right? if, if anything, because of their emphasis on the conspiracy here in the U.S., but they also took that position. So, um, but what I find it particularly interesting is the case of Pat Buchanan, because if you read his biography right from the beginning, that I think he wrote around 1988, 
He has a, a few pages about the atomic bombings of Japan uh, in World War II, and he is dead set against that. And you would think, well, wait a minute, he's a right winger, so of course he just favors unleashing the military and everybody. But he says, no, 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 that is a juvenile way of understanding the way we think about things. There are some things you simply cannot do. Whether or not they advance your war aims, you simply cannot do them. Uh, and and there, there are a lot of considerations to be made. My point is that he comes out against that and says there were a lot of people, like Eisenhower himself was saying this was a mistake, it shouldn't have been done. But then Pat in the 1990s, after the first Persian Gulf War, there were a number of years uh, under Bill Clinton where there were sanctions imposed on Iraq that made it very difficult to get very important things into the country, including like water purification and stuff like that, that led to all kinds of problems, um, uh, malnutrition and, and, and disease and a lot of unnecessary death. And it was Pat Buchanan, not the, not the mainstream Democrats, but it was Pat Buchanan who was saying these sanctions have to be lifted because for heaven's sake, there is no moral defense of this. Uh, this is not hurting the regime. It never does hurt the regime. The regime is going to be fine. The regime in any of these countries has control over the, uh, you know, the, all the, the major power centers in the country and the wealth. They're going to be fine. You, you, you know you're just hurting ordinary people. We can't do this. And so I remember being a college student in 1991. In early 1991, we had the Persian Gulf War, and Buchanan was dead set against it. And I remember being puzzled at that. I thought, wait a minute, no. This is the military. We support the military. And, and it was only later that I realized, well, that's a little bit of a, 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 of a simplistic way of, of looking at things. And it was by reading Chronicles magazine, uh, that I, I be, which is you know, like a paleocon magazine, that I began to realize that there's something more to this. And it's interesting to note, too, that there are plenty of people who would say, we sh- you know, this is a shame that we're sending our men into harm's way without a, a clear exit strategy or whatever. They'll say something like that, or we're sending them in for nation building. But it was Ron Paul and it was people like Buchanan who would also say, oh, and by the way, there are also people in those countries who are being harmed. Because it, it was almost as if those people don't count because they don't vote in American elections. So who cares what happens to the people in those countries? But Pat and Ron did care. They said, well, you know, this is also bad for them. And this, this should, we, we have a, a completely inhuman bipartisan uh, foreign policy establishment that has whose policies even on their own terms, have not done us any good. Uh, they've only won us a whole lot more hostility. We've, we've blown trillions of dollars, and we seem to be encouraging the growth of the exact kind of movements we want to try to get rid of in, in, in uh, the Middle East, for example. So, um, so but, but at the same time, of course, there are, I mean, somebody like Ron Paul would say, we have to, we have to abandon the ambitions of empire. But if you were to talk to let's say, some of the more Bill Weldish people in the libertarian world, they would say, oh, we don't use a word like empire. We're respectable people. You know, we don't want to talk like that. But that is the way I think we need to think. So, yeah, I think the thing that got, uh, there are two things that I think made Ron Paul really break out. Apart from his plain spokenness and his willingness to answer any question, even questions that focus group coordinators would tell him, don't answer that question. Just run away. The fact that he would answer it made him different. Now, he just wants to answer your question. He doesn't care what it is. But it was two things. Number one, his emphasis on the Federal Reserve, that we need to talk about this. Because there are people who cared about that a lot and never heard a politician talk about it. Now, at the time, 
I have a blog post that I am I'm keeping up because if I'm wrong, I keep it up there for the world to see, right? We all make mistakes. And I posted, I really think he's making a mistake emphasizing the Federal Reserve. Nobody knows about it. Nobody cares. It's too technical. I think that had a good chunk to do with his fundraising uh, success because there were people who knew about it, cared about it, knew that it could do damage, but never heard anybody say a word about it. And now suddenly somebody is that got their attention. But the other thing was that he could be a Republican and speak out against war because it was up to that time. Nobody thought that was possible, but you cannot deny this guy's credentials. I mean, Nobody was better on taxes and spending than Ron Paul. Nobody was better on regulation than Ron Paul. And nobody was better on any of these things than, than he was. He was voted the taxpayer's best friend over and over and over and over. So you couldn't, he was obviously no commie. And this made it possible for people to say, like, for example, when Donald Trump in South Carolina said that the, the war had been sold on the basis of lies and it was a stupid Bush family that did it. There were a lot of conversations going on in military households that night where they knew, they knew what a mistake it had been. They knew better than anybody. And now suddenly they could speak their minds because following on the heels of Ron Paul, showing you could be a free market capitalist and be against war, suddenly it seemed okay. And then Trump made it seem okay to say these things publicly uh, those were major, major turning points. Now we have a situation where your party affiliation does not at all make it obvious where you're going to stand on foreign policy. It's much murkier and more interesting. Tom, yeah, I thought that a great point on on Ron Paul, his, his ability in particular to speak to military families. One thing that I always appreciate about him is even though he had the anti-war uh, position, which I, I largely am in agreement with, uh, his, you might think, you know, the vets aren't going to support an anti-war candidate, but it turns out that he's, he was the most popular Republican candidate when he was running for president among veterans and had the highest, you know, number of donations among veterans. So I always really respected him for that. I want to shift gears, uh, real quick. We have a few minutes left to education and I have a two-part question for you. I know you've written a lot about, uh, Catholicism and the history of the West, but you've also put together homeschooling curriculum, liberty-based homeschooling curriculum for families. So I guess the, the twofold question. First, uh, there's a lot of uh, conservatives nowadays who say that a lot of the ideas of liberty, maybe it's private property, maybe it's free markets, really uh, only extend to the individualism of, of John Locke. That's really where they originated. You make the case that it goes back a lot farther. Obviously, the medieval Catholic tradition I can even go further back to the classical tradition with Cicero being a defender of private property. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about liberty and getting beyond, be, going behind the Enlightenment back to the Middle Ages. And then second, if you could close with, you know, for our college students, what are three or four books on liberty that could really, you know, get them to dive a little bit deeper into the tradition that you think would be beneficial for them? Oh, boy. Okay. Boy, I wish I had thought of that one in advance. Okay, yeah, well, today um, in the discussion I had uh, on stage, I mentioned this wouldn't be one of my recommended books for your second question, but I recommended a book by Brian Tierney called The Idea of Natural Rights. And he traces back this idea that there are, and, and really what, it, what is a right, really? It, really? it really simply means that there is some sphere in which I can act and it would be wrong of you to interfere. That's basically what it's saying. And that idea, the language of rights might not have been used, but the concepts 
in fact, go, go well into the, the, certainly into the high Middle Ages, you start to see this idea developing. But there's even a, um, oh, now I can't remember his name. God, doggone it. It's been so long since I've thought about this. But Fred, oh, I can't remember his name. Um, he was at Bowling Green. And he had a, 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 he was a scholar of Aristotle, showing that you can even pull some of these ideas out of Aristotle. He doesn't use this language. But you can even start to so if you look if you know what you're looking for you can find these ideas so it's not like there was no such thing as individual rights and then John Locke was born and then we got them or there was no such thing as respect for the free market economy until Adam Smith came along that that's not true either um, the, the 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 school of Salamanca in Spain in the 16th century was already working out the basic ideas of subjective value which is central to the Austrian school tradition of the free price system. Uh, they, they wrote about taxation and monopoly. And this was largely unknown in the West because they wrote, you know, they were writing theological treatises that had some economic ideas embedded in them. And most people didn't look for those there. And they were written, written in Latin. So later scholars weren't reading them. And so we see that actually a lot of these ideas extend much farther back into the past. Now, in terms of books, I would recommend, uh, I'm going to recommend the exact book that was recommended to me when I was a college freshman, by a fellow freshman. He said, you need to read the book Modern Times by Paul Johnson. And this is a history of the world from the 20s to the 80s. He later extended it to the 90s. I don't really like his material on the 90s, so I just you can just stop at the 80s. But it's a world history, and unlike most world histories, it reads like a novel. Every page is brimming with quotations you know you want to use in a speech someday, as brimming with anecdotes you've never heard that are fascinating. And it chronicles the collectivism of the 20th century and the horrors that resulted. But it also tells some American history. And the chapters on American history are fascinating. And what the, the way I was hooked into reading this long book was my friend said, you're going to find out that everybody they told you was a great president wasn't really so great. And the ones they told you were the, the deadbeat bums. Some of them weren't so bad. And I thought, oh, this sounds fascinating. Yes, I need to read this. So Paul Johnson was not a professional historian, but didn't doesn't matter. Was so, I mean, in fact, I say was, I'm not sure if he's still alive. But when he wrote this book, I'll say, he was so widely read, could comment intelligently on so many different things. It, it's, it's, it's an indispensable book. Fascinating. Modern Times by Paul Johnson. Now, that's a long book, so that can count as like two. But, this, but another one I would recommend is also a history book. And that is, you need to know about the details of the Bolshevik Revolution. You just need to. Um, but there are huge books on it that you'll never get to. So read Richard Pipes's book, A Concise History of the Russian Revolution. It reads like a novel. And, and, and it, it definitively smashes a thesis that I used to hear in college, which was Stalin, we admit he was bad, but he was a, you know, he was a diversion from the, the good trajectory the revolution was on. Lenin was a good guy and inexplicably Stalin came out. And so my professor, I had a very anti-Bolshevik professor of Russian history who said, we need to lay to rest the Lenin good, Stalin bad myth. And this book absolutely uh, crushes it. Um, let me think of what would be other other ones that I like. Of course, you should 
learn some basic economics, but we'll, uh, I'm trying to think of what would be. Oh, you know what I'll do? You know what I'll do? I actually have a list of them on my website. Um, so like there's a book by Robert Nisbet that I recommend and there's a, a bunch of titles, but I would recommend um, before I give you that list, I'll give you a third book. And then for my fourth book, I'll just give you the list. The third book would be a short 160 page, roughly or so, give or take, book by Ron Paul himself, The Revolution, a Manifesto. Because here is where you have a one-stop shop. Here's the case for economic freedom. Here's the case for um, you know civil liberties or something. All these sorts of things. The, the case for his foreign policy laid out with evidence, quotations, references, but short. It's the kind of book you can give to your friend and say, you read this thing. And, and by the way, what I recommend is you say to your friend, you give me a book to read and I'll read your book. And then we'll talk about it. that's a way to get people thinking because you'll be open-minded enough to listen to what that person has to say. But the, the link to my recommended books, probably about a dozen of them. And I'm telling you, if you read these books, you are going to understand how the world works better than almost anybody. And you can find it at tomwoods.com slash good books. That's as simple as it can get. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Before we wrap up our episode, we have one last question for you. And that is, we want you to define what conservatism means to you. Uh, okay. Well, I, even though I, I call myself a libertarian, there are times when I'm hanging out with libertarians and I feel like a conservative around them. So uh, so I still have a great many conservative instincts. I would say conservatism at its heart is the belief that the past has something to teach you and is not to be treated dismissively or with contempt. And so the, it is the opposite of the totalitarian revolutions of the 18th through 20th centuries, the French and the Russian as particular examples, where there was a distinct attempt to break society off from its past and renew it again on the basis of pure reason alone. And that, it doesn't, not only does it not work, but it tends to lead to murderous outcomes. Because what are you going to do with all those people who rather liked that old society you're trying to break them away from? What are you going to do with those people? Well, it turns out they're going to be executed. That's what, that's what seems to happen every single time. So more than anything, it's that. It's that when you think about, I sometimes give the analogy of a, of a, a house. The different walls in a house serve different purposes. Some of them are merely decorative or they're merely there to separate rooms. But other walls are supporting walls, keeping that whole building standing. And if you have this instinct that any institution that you don't instantly understand the purpose of in 10 minutes worth of study can just be dispensed with, what if, and it's possible that we can do without that institution. Yes, maybe that was just there and we didn't need it. But what if it's a supporting wall, so to speak? You get rid of it, the whole thing comes crumbling down. So more than anything, I wouldn't say conservatism is free markets and a strong national defense and family values. You know, that's, those are slogans from the 1980s. What it fundamentally is, is a respect for the inheritance of the past. It doesn't mean a slavish respect for it, and it doesn't mean that the past is never wrong, but there is an accumulation of wisdom that goes back thousands of years that ought to inform the way we think about things today. And it may be true that some things we just need to uproot entirely, but very rarely are you going to examine what great thinkers before you thought and feel like that was a waste of your time. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. If people are interested in seeing more of your work or following you, where can they find you? 
Well, the old Tom Woods show has been around for quite a while with over 2,000 episodes. You never have to be alone in the car again with all the topics I've covered. So the quick way to get there, to get to all those episodes and links to subscribe, is tomspodcast.com. Yes, that domain name was available, and I snatched it up. Best 10 smackers I ever spent. tomspodcast.com. Great. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you both. Thank you for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to head over to isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, Select Modern Age Articles, ISI Books, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI. Bye.